Welcome to Feeding the Flock and our expositions through the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. We are currently at chapter 2 and verse 1. Hi there, I'm Glendale Tony. I'm glad you joined me today. Let's begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 2 of the book of Daniel, where it says this. Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. The king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time, inasmuch as you have seen the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore tell me the dream, that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can declare the matter for the king, inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except God's, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious, and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He said to Arioch, the king's commander, For what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare their interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, 
Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter, so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So this is a story, of course, about this dream that the king had. This is chapter 2. And the dream, eventually, we will learn, uh, um, is concerning a statue and a stone. And we'll get to that later in further episodes. But right now, this story is about the development of how the dream uh, came to be, number one, and how it came to be interpreted, number two. Now, we already know that chapter one is the story about the transfer to the University of Babylon. And in fact, the first six chapters are all a compilation of stories. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not uh, a lot of other things going on as a part of the story. There's also this, this thing called this dream and the interpretation of the dream, which involves quite a bit of detail, but they are still in the context of these stories, and that's what we've uh, labeled them. Now, later on, there's the stand of the four in the furnace, then there's the uh, the gospel tract that is actually written by the testimony of a king. That's chapter four. In chapter five is the wall, which is uh, uh, the uh, the tablet in which there was handwriting uh, that needed to be deciphered. Then there is the den of lions in chapter 6. So those are all the stories of Daniel. Then later in chapter 7, we'll get to other things that we would label as visions, and we'll get to those chapters 7 through 12. But this chapter 2 is about this dream, a statue and a stone. But we've not yet heard the content of the dream or its interpretation. We're just building it up here uh, to get to that place. And this first part that we read today has to do uh, with the uh, king having this dream. And now later we will talk about in another episode about the uh, mystery being revealed. But right now the uh, the drama is being played out and uh, Daniel as the author of this book is is a, a great storyteller in that regard. And so he begins by labeling or at least giving us an idea of the time frame. So he puts a time time stamp on it. And he says, now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, and he wants us to know that uh, this is his second year. Now, um, many regards, uh, the Jewish people would normally number the king's reign from his date of ascension into the throne, and that accession to the throne uh, was dated as year one. But in the Babylonian culture of that day, they would number as year one as his first full year of reigning. And so this could likely be uh, around 602 BC is where I'm getting at with this. And so Daniel puts us in a timestamp. So these are still teenagers in a hostile culture, but uh, they have uh, won themselves a, a certain position in that 
palace, in the uh, palace consultants, in the uh, especially when it came to spiritual consulting. And so that's the group that they're in, and there evidently is a whole list of people in that group of consulting about spiritual things. And of course, this pagan king Nebuchadnezzar could uh, could consult these as a group, as an entire committee, or maybe even one by one, and we'll find that uh, later on as well. And so he has this dream, and it begins in verse 1 that he had dreams, plural, but as we get through the context of chapter 2, we'll find out that this is basically still just one dream. Now, maybe, just maybe, it was given out in uh, in segments of dreams, and it had a composite dream at the end or something like that, or maybe it was just a uh, an overall dream that he kept having uh, over and over again. And so, uh, because he kept having this same dream, then it became a plural number of incidences, and it was very disturbing for the king, and so he gave orders to bring in this group of spiritual advisors, you might call them. And in fact, uh, in this uh, list here, they give various categories. The first category is uh, the magicians, and that refers to textual scribes or of uh, uh, readers of religious literature, and that's where uh, what these were. They 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 composed things. They wrote things down. Maybe it had to do with records of of certain things that happened or certain ways of doing things. And so these were called the magicians. And then there were the conjurers. These were enchanters, or they were spell casters. They knew how to cast a spell or to uh, commit curses or or blessings or something else. Then there are these sorcerers, and these were sort of like the chemists in the crowd in the sense that they knew how to develop certain magic potions, and, uh, and they were the ones that were involved in those things. Then there were this category called the Chaldeans. And what's interesting is this is also uh, a, to, uh, a people group uh, within the Babylonian Empire. And they were the dominated group, by the way, in that empire. There were others too, but uh, the Chaldeans or the Chaldean people group were a part of the Babylonian Empire. And yet at the same time, the name is a label for these particular uh, spiritual advisors. And that seems to be a certain class of priests that were known for their wisdom or for their skill in religious things. And of course, Daniel and his three friends were a part of that group, uh, and they were uh, lifted to that realm, you might say. They were a part of the list uh, of... uh, after having graduated from the University of Babylon with a certain kind of degree, you might say, perhaps a graduate degree in these spiritual things and the things concerning the Babylonian culture. Well, so they call in these people evidently without Daniel and his three friends. And uh, so that's when Nebuchadnezzar starts uh, telling them that there are conditions that he wants in place that uh, in, in which this is going to play out. And so he starts giving the this decree. Now, he says then that uh, you tell me the dream 
they want to know the dream, of course, but uh, the uh, the king says, no, is, this isn't going to work that way. I'm not going to tell you the dream. If you uh, are the very experts that the government is paying in order to be on their payroll, in order to be a part of this bureaucracy of spiritual advisors, then, uh, then, then I want to test your metal. I want to test your claims about being religious advisors and fortune tellers and, and seers of things and, and enchanters of things because I want you to know my mind. I want you to tell me my dream. You tell me my dream, then I know that you will have authority to interpret the dream. And so th- this king is not playing games here. He's not playing this little thing that, oh, tell me the dream and then then I'll give you an interpretation. That's the way that the it was maybe traditionally done and we all went home and everybody was happy and everybody got paid at the end of the month or whatever. And, uh, and, uh, and yet the king now is so interested in getting this right and getting this interpretation right that he knows he's not going to put up with these guys. And uh, in fact, he says, the, uh, the, the command uh, from me is firm. Now, there's an original translation that has given the idea that uh, the, the, the command has gone out as if the dream had left him and he didn't know or remember the dream anymore. But that's not exactly the context, you see. What he's saying is he has orders and he's given orders that if you don't do this my way, uh, then I'll, I'm going to have your heads. Well, we're going to get back right after a break. We need a break after that. Here in Daniel chapter 2, verse 4, I wanted to uh, pay attention to something that's gone on from a literature standpoint, and that is, then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, and so they are using this special language that evidently uh, uh, has has become the, the official language in some regards, and so, so um, they speak in Aramaic which is a Semitic language. It's not uh, uh, Hebrew strictly. It's something else, but, but uh, it's related to the general family of languages that uh, we would call Semitic languages. So uh, Aramaic then is, is a time that uh, in this place where Daniel now in chapter 2 verse 4 begins to write in Aramaic language. So in chapter 2 verse 4, 
all the way through uh, chapter 7, he uh, writes in the language of the Babylonians and the Persians and many others of that whole region had adopted that language as a as a an, an economic language or a business language, you might say a diplomatic language even. And so so Daniel, as a Jewish prophet, now begins to write this document in the Aramaic language from this point all the way through chapter 7. So I wanted to pay attention to that. And then the uh, uh, the king has just said that uh, this is my command, and it's, it's, it's uh, pretty strict. You're going to have to tell me my dream first so that then I know you have the authority to tell me the interpretation. Well, Otherwise, he says, uh, you will be, this is verse, uh, verse five, you will be torn limb from limb so that uh, uh, your bodies are going to be executed in a very painful way. And then uh, your houses will be made a rubbish heap. And that word and that term for rubbish heap seems to hide, have the idea that their, their homes will be turned into public latrines. And that's, uh, that's the threat, you see, that uh, they would be tortured and killed by uh, by just sectioning their bodies and pulling them apart. That's a pretty uh, brutal thing, but that's the culture. This was a brutal culture and a brutal king. And uh, there may be some things that he does that uh, that is very wise and very uh, very understanding. And yet, on the other hand, he can be very dictatorial and tyrannical and brutal and physically uh, tortuous at the same time. He says, and, and again, they come back and they say, well, tell us the dream and we'll give you the interpretation. So verse 8, he says, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time. So the king now begins to question their original claims about being spiritual authorities. After all, if you claim to know the things beyond physical things, the supernatural, you might say, or or the the uh, the things of uh, the paranormal, and you can't tell me my own dream. You think that you know things that are are above uh, knowing, and yet you don't know my dream. Then. Uh, He's a, don't you get it? He's he's kind of exposing these guys for the frauds that they are, and uh, and the scam artists that they are, and he's and so that's what he says. Uh, he says if you don't, you're bargaining for time. If you don't tell me the dream, uh, there's only one decree for you. You've agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation has changed. You're hoping that somehow you'll get get by with this and that uh, I'll forget about it later and then you'll be off the hook and you'll still be able to keep your jobs and keep your lives and keep your heads on your bodies. But uh, he's saying no, that's not going to happen that way. You you tell me this and do it my way. And so then the Chaldeans kind of have their own le- leverage against the king, you might say, but it's all just rhetorical because he still holds the executioner's uh, uh, payroll as well as the spiritual advisor's payroll. And so so the Chaldean says, there's not a man on earth who would declare the matter for the king inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician's conjurer 
or Chaldeans. And so they're kind of blaming the king, you see, or at least attempting to. And they're saying, they're basically saying, there's no king alive that's that's treated their spiritual advisors this way, King. You know the game. You tell us first, and uh, and basically they're they're saying nobody ever done this before. You're stepping out of the box. This is this whole uh, protocol it has a has a tradition to it, and now you're broken protocol by by demanding of us something that no other king has ever demanded you you're extraordinary in your demands here and so they're blaming him you see and look at this uh, and and they uh look at the second part of verse 11 he says there is no one else who would declare it to the king except the gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh so they're admitting it they're admitting that they don't know things that go on in the spiritual realm, in the unseen realm of a man's own dreams. They do not have the skill of reading a person's mind, truly. They cannot look into them uh, and read their minds. And, and basically, that's what they're saying. They have admitted it now. We don't have that power to read your mind, king. And it's like, well, then the king basically says, if you can't read my mind, then you can't interpret into my dream. And you you need to man up to the very profession you profess to be a part of and that we pay you for. And yet uh, they're still blaming him and saying, well, uh, this is beyond beyond. And uh, the king says, it's not beyond anything. You, you ought to be able to do this. That's what you claim to do. And yet... Uh, and yet he says they they are so they're admitting this that no one could do this except the gods uh, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. So they do at least admit to the fact that there are the these supernatural creatures out there that maybe they have that power, but they don't. You see, uh, these these professional magicians and these professional uh, religious and spiritual advisors still can't read a man's mind and still can't predict what or or even tell him what's going on in this dream ahead of time uh, before they interpret it. So. This is a critical moment, you might say. It's basically a, a critical moment for this entire school. This entire school of of uh, spiritual advisors is uh, not only they're not just going to get fired; they're going to get killed. And it says, verse fourteen. Then Daniel replied. Uh, excuse me. Let's go back to verse. Verse 12, it says that uh, because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Now, Daniel and his friends weren't part of this committee meeting. They were, Evidently, they didn't get the memo or something. I don't know. Uh, but uh, they weren't in on it, and yet they were part of the list. So when the list came out, to uh, search them, uh, search them out, and and kill them, and to destroy their homes. That uh, Daniel and his three friends were still there on the list, and so uh, then it says in verse fourteen. Then Daniel. 
replied with, uh, uh, with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard. This guy was the head of the secret service, you see. And so he's, he's started the list and why he started with Daniel and his three friends first, I don't know, but uh, that had to have been something about the timing or the, the, the way the list had developed uh, that uh, even though that Daniel and, and the other guys weren't there w- during this consultation, this official uh, interrogation, uh, yet uh, they were the first ones that uh, the, uh, the Secret Service uh, interrogated and came to. And so and notice that the way that uh, is described Daniel's own demeanor, his own, his own ability here, his own uh, character is laid out here in verse 14. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment. So Daniel approaches the whole situation with a different demeanor. And that, that is a winsomeness that the other guys didn't have because he is willing to do this, but he he does so, and he makes this request in a cordial way. Notice that's the same way he did it when it came to requesting a different diet than everybody else had. He took a stand, but he didn't do so with an arrogance or with a, um, uh, an obnoxiousness. He did so with uh, this discernment and this discretion. He knew how to approach those people with authority with the kind of demeanor, the kind of rapport that meant he could actually say things that no one would uh, would have said otherwise, but he got by with it. And he basically uh, told this guy uh, who had, actually he was, he's not just the secret service in this case, he's been tasked with being the executioner also uh, to wipe these guys out. And so he said to Ariok, verse 15, uh, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? And Ariok informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested the king. Somehow Daniel was able to get an audience with Nebuchadnezzar right off the bat. And I don't know how he did this, but he did so kind of like uh, uh, Esther did with the with the king, except Esther was also the king's bride. And so uh, that would have meant something. But Daniel, uh, he was on the list to be terminated. And yet he he somehow was able to get on uh, with the king and actually uh, get an audience there and make this request. And look at this further. He says, he says he gave uh, uh, gave him time. What's interesting is the king discerned from Daniel's own demeanor that Daniel wasn't wasting time. He requested time. He wasn't trying to bargaining for something. He was requesting the time that would take to make an accurate interpretation. And that's what Daniel did. And it says in verse 17, he went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter. And so these four guys went to God in prayer. And these three friends prayed for Daniel so that the God of heaven would reveal this mystery to Daniel. That the rest 
of the uh, wise men of Babylon would not be destroyed along with them. And so they made this prayer request. And, and that's what's fascinating, is that Daniel not only took a stand again in this critical situation, but notice that in the first chapter, Daniel made up his mind. And in this chapter, he says, Daniel informed his friends. It's good to have friends, close friends, int intimate friends, friends who can go to God in prayer for you, friends you can trust with the message that means that they can they pray to your God and pray that God would answer with a right interpretation. This is an important, critical moment for Daniel and his friends and the God of heaven is going to come through. We're going to find that out in future episodes in chapter 2 of Daniel. Thank you, Father, for these moments together as we understand the storyteller Daniel as he tells this story, as he lays it out for us, the drama of what's going on behind the scenes in the palace and that he is now called upon to stand for you and to give your words in this situation. And we thank you that we can depend upon you to come through for us in difficult situations, in things that we must face in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you enjoyed our presentation today. This is Glendale Tony. Join us again for the next episode of Feeding the Flock. <laughs>